Hey, you're listening to Blindsight. Let's go. Dental health isn't something to take lightly. It's time to fight. It's time to thrive. Let's do this. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Blindsight. My name is Jonathan Price, and this is a very different episode because, one, Bill's not here, and we had some major technical issues, and that was really frustrating. So I apologize because... Um, I'm not a psychoanalyst and I have no degree in psychotherapy. And so this is going to be a lot of fun for me to just kind of, uh, figure out what's in the world is going on. Now I know I'm on this show a lot talking with Bill, so it'll be a fantastic conversation. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about addiction and how the use of alcohol really affects not only ourselves personally, but what we perceive to other people, what we put out to other people, and then kind of how we hide it. And so we wanted to follow that up. And we were talking very, very briefly about food addiction. And my guest today, Bonnie Brennan, is an amazing uh, interventionist and as along with a food uh, addiction counselor or a therapist. And so, Bonnie, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you today? I'm doing great. Just starting to snow here where I live in Colorado. Nice. Uh, Beautiful sweater weather and really excited to talk with you about um, addictions and food and body challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're we're both in Colorado. I'm actually wearing shorts and a hoodie, and my kids laughed at me when I was taking them to school. So it was very uh, entertaining, <laughs> at least for them. And uh, so, well, Bonnie, kind of run me through the general overarching scope of what you do, and we'll kind of shape some of the conversations around that and get into some of the interventions and and the. I guess, body imaging things. Yeah. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I've been a licensed clinician, licensed professional counselor in Colorado for over 20 years Mm -hmm. and started my career working with um, addictions and mental health issues, especially with supporting uh, families and couples. And also picked up um, working with eating disorders fairly early Mm -hmm. in my career and was running a hospital um, where I was a clinical leader for 11 and a half years here in Colorado and expanded all over the place. And now I work with folks in private practice uh, in person and uh, virtually around the world as an interventionist, as a expert consultant and a therapist. Very cool. So what got you into kind of the the eating disorder realm, what what happened to make that possible? That's a good question. And, and I have a personal story about that. So when I was in graduate school, I had to write a paper called The Population I Will Never Treat. And okay. then mine was titled Eating Disorders. Oh, okay. Interestingly enough, right? So I thought I knew it all when I was in graduate school. Sure. Um, And the purpose of choosing that topic was because my mother had struggled with food and body challenges her entire life, and I was sometimes the target of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought, you know, I I can't be doing this because I have too many feelings about it, right? It's too close to me. And so I focused on my work with addictions, 
So as I was seeing those people, because I had been raised in an environment where there was a lot of control around food and body, I would naturally ask those questions, you know, about like, what's happening now that you're trying to beat this um, issue with your addiction or your substance use disorder? And, you know, are you having a different relationship with food? How Mm. is your relationship with the scale? And my clients would look at me like, nobody's ever asked me that question before. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for noticing. Thank you for caring and wanted to have me work with them on this eating disorder that they're disclosing for the first time. Sure. Because I thought I wasn't competent. Of course, I'd try to refer them out. But it was really the clients that convinced me, no, you get this and understand this. And only later did I put it together that... um, I had been trained my whole life to pay attention to those Mm. challenges. Um, So an inadvertent gift from my mother to all of the folks that I help (laughs) uh, treat these days. Uh, And and then I started working in the field and I just found it was such a good fit for me. So that story kind of hits home because a lot of it sounds like eating disorder was just a symptom of something else that was happening. Is that accurate? That's how I like to think about it. We uh, like to say that an eating disorder or an addiction is a problem that is an attempt to solve other problems, right? So uh, there's a therapy model called internal family systems, and they would describe it. I think they have the easiest way to describe it, which is the what you do with food in your body or the substances you're putting in your body is a firefighting response. So oh, okay. when the system is out of control with emotions, feeling overwhelmed, just wants to numb or does it, you know, it, it's so painful to be mm. inside yourself that you will do things that may have serious consequences in order to not have to be in that pain. Right. So when people are starting to figure out that they may have a problem with either eating disorders or a bad relationship with food or the scale or what have you, what are some of the first telltale signs that you notice when going through that? So when you're noticing that you are kind of wanting to turn yourself off and escape with a certain type of behavior, um, when that starts to occupy your mind more than other things. Mm. So some of the more severe cases of eating disorders I've seen, and, and, you know, even some folks who just maybe they don't have a severe case, but they have um, many years of challenges will say that the first thoughts that come to them are about like, what do I do about my body? What do I do about my food? And and kind of occupying the mind um, as a way to focus it. Right. Which Mm -hmm. in it, you know, strangely has its own benefits as well because it makes decision making easier when there are lots of things to maybe be worried about or you know in terms of maybe I have social anxiety Mm. and being in a certain diet plan or certain workout routine would help me to make a decision about whether I should go to the party or the Uh, after work get together interesting so what are some of the, I guess we have the common ones like overeating, anorexia, bulimia. Are are there some others that are lesser known, quote unquote, I guess, that people need to be aware of? 
Sure. And yeah, I just want to emphasize too that eating disorders, you know, come in all shapes and sizes across the lifespan and also all different cultures and uh, all different genders. So that our our old way of thinking about eating disorders with is this this is a problem for young college age females. <laughs> right. And that's not that's no. not what we're seeing anymore. Yeah. We have about twenty eight point eight million Americans that are affected oh, wow. with eating disorder issues. And um, anorexia in particular has the second highest mortality rate out of any really? other mental illness. It held the first spot for not that that's a good thing, but for many years but the opioid epidemic yeah. eclipsed that. So now we have more deaths from opioid overdose. Um, so the, the way that it presents is you through restricting your food intake, through restricting and then getting rid of your food. So mm. I like to say that you know, some people use the word purging right. or undoing of the food. Sure. And that can be done in many ways. It can be done by vomiting or laxative use over exercise very common in Colorado to see mm. what we call exercise bulimia oh wow meaning that they they they're putting in food and then doing enormous amounts of uh, physical activity to undo that food wow um, binge eating disorder which incidentally is the uh, there are more men with binge eating disorder mm-hmm. that's the highest prevalence for eating disorder with men has yeah. been binge eating disorder, and it's the most common eating disorder, more so than bulimia nervosa or anorexia nervosa. And then we also have, you asked about the ones that we might not know as much about. We have um, eating disorder, uh, an eating disorder that's avoided restrictive food intake disorder, which is associated with uh, avoidance of foods because of maybe there's... um, a sensitivity to the taste or texture. There's been mm. some trauma around eating or fear of vomiting. Mm. The difference with that disorder is that it it does not have the weight, shape, and size concerns that are typically associated with the other eating disorders. Gotcha. And you'll see a more of a prevalence of that in folks who might uh, be on the spectrum, autism spectrum disorder, who oh. might have... Um, uh, more obsessive compulsive disorder. There, it's more about the the anxiety about putting the food in the body and not maybe wanting to throw up or fear of contaminants. Gotcha. Um, fear of the sensation of the food. That's really interesting. I'm going to back up for a second. I'm glad you talked about the differences between men and women and why one affects the other more. Are you seeing sometimes? I guess why are you seeing that? Why why do men go more to the overeating versus women and and vice versa? What is there any data to kind of flush that out? You know, I think our you, the data that we do have is largely based on uh, people that are self reporting or identifying. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so it's hard to say. So there a lot of men uh, over the last ten years I've seen uh, are more likely to identify as having an eating disorder where before just nobody thought that men could have an eating disorder. We just assumed it was all females. We're just going to all pack it away in the name of eating. (laughs) It's not a big deal. I'm just going to eat three plates of food. Yeah. So social media, I think, and you know, our media and social media has done us a favor and 
helping people to understand that these disorders can uh, affect, you know, people of all genders. Right. Uh, but our actual data that we have right now is about the, the females are twice as likely to have an eating disorder as a male, though I, you know, I, I would say that I hesitate to say that. Sure absolutely true, right? That's what our data says right now, but yeah. that could be because uh, males are less likely to self-identify still. Uh, yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up that point. When you were talking about the numbing of the mind to try to use the food to cope with things, is that similar to the reaction or the ability to take an alcohol to fulfill the same thing? Or is that a different kind of plane when you're talking about uh, just overcoming, or not not overcoming, but to numb whatever you're going through? So we have a little bit of a difference in terms of the, the relationship with the use of food and uh, when, when it's trying to problem-solve emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I'm working with somebody in therapy, one of the first things I do in, in sessions is to identify here are emotional responses mm-hmm. because a lot most of the time there is an emotional trigger before the engagement of behavior mm. some people have are, are so patterned that they don't realize that that's happening but in general when we start to separate separate out like oh i was angry about something and i found myself you know, going to potato chips. There's all kinds of interesting things you can observe too about like what people go to for food in terms of what that might be telling them about their emotions. So potato chips is my favorite thing. You know, I want want to have, and that's usually because I'm angry about something and you think about what does the mouth do when you're eating a potato chip? It's like, right. right? It wants to say something, right? Whereas when we go for ice cream, um, that could be about wanting something soothing or sweet wow, interesting. and needing something more, you know, that our lives need more sweetness, either we need to be sweeter to ourselves. Okay. So what does it say we about want others to be sweet? To what, us. What's it say about chocolate? Oops, so chocolate <laughs> is, you know, there's that, I need that sweetness, but it, it's also sensuality, oh. maybe something a little bit more passionate, um, something that has excitement to it, but at the same time is soothing. Ah, so spicy chocolates are probably a really interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's really, I hadn't even considered the quality or the texture of food being associated with a mental, I want to say condition, but that's not, you kind of understand the, the mental makeup of whatever it is you're going through. That's a very interesting, uh, I, take on it because i've also heard that people who crunch ice um it's associated with like a sexual ideology or a thought i don't know if that's still true or not is can you speak to that i haven't heard that one i have to say but i will reflect on it very interesting one of the 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 most fascinating things for me is when supporting individuals with their food and body challenges Mm -hmm. is to actually witness what they do with food and everybody's plate tells a different story. It, it, people just love to eat out with me, sure. as you could imagine. I've, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm being facetious there because they, yeah. they know that I'm thinking, I'm watching yes. and you know observing how they interact with food tells me a little bit about 
what emotions they might have. Um, it, it, it's interesting, like party conversation to ask somebody, what's your favorite food? Uh-huh. And then describe it you know, as if I had never eaten it before. And they'll give you a lot of information about why, what, what it is that they enjoy about that and what emotions they connect to around that food. Okay. So I'm going to hang myself out to dry here. And I fully understand knowing that when I ask this question, I may be ripped apart and that's totally okay. So if I were to tell you that my favorite food was barbecue and chicken wings, what do you think that says? Well, I would then ask you, what is it about barbecue and chicken wings that you enjoy? And describe it to me as if I've never put it in my mouth. Okay. So we'll just, we'll just play along with this because this is fun for me. So the barbecue for me tastes, I like the sweet and the sour um, of the sauce itself. And I like, it's not really about the meat texture. I can do like pulled pork or, you know, barbecue ribs or whatever. It's not really about the meat. The sauce is really what it's, what it is for me. It's sweet. It's warm. It's, you know, those types of things with chicken wings. On the other hand, that is very much more of a texture thing. I want a nice crunch wing. I don't usually like saucy wings. I like dry rub on the wings, which I know is very counterintuitive to the barbecue because barbecue is very saucy. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's if I were to describe the taste, my favorite is lemon pepper. I like that sour. I like the spice. I like the, um, I, I like that. I do like a little bit of spice in there, but yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, I mean, you're already saying it and, and wondering what the listeners are thinking, yeah. right? So that you're, you like it to be a little saucy and tangy yep. and interesting and with diversity of texture. And that would tell me a little bit about like who you are, and yeah. what you, you know, find enjoyable about your life. You're, you know, you're not going to probably be satisfied with something that's the same all the time. That's right. Very true. That's yeah. So that's just a little bit of look into my life. So there you go. Kind of opening up the book. I want to transition a little bit. Thank you for that little exercise. That was fun. You have a family member or you yourself are going through an eating disorder or you're struggling with something either internally and maybe deeper than that food issue. What can people recognize to help somebody get the help that they need first? So are you asking, how, how do I identify yes. that someone has an eating disorder? And then what do I say to them yes. if I'm yes. concerned? Yes, thank you. Yeah, so um, one of the telltale signs, of course, is uh, losing weight and not really the person not really acknowledging that. Uh, for strokes, for folks that struggle with bulimia, they you will notice that they will disappear shortly after eating. Mm. They may eat a healthy amount of food at the table, yeah. but then use the bathroom right away. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, a, a one that I you know it's not typically on the list, but I've learned to look for over my years is is there an ordinate amount of time talking about food and body? Oh, interesting. Is your conversation always centering around what you eat, what you ate, what you won't eat, what your diet says, how you're feeling about your body? Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of the eating disorders, except for that ARFID one that I talked with you about, have a fear of being 
uh, overweight or being out of control Mm -hmm. with their weight. And so you'll start to hear that in the dialogue of the individual. Um, There are lots of organ systems that are affected by uh, bulimia and anorexia. Mm -hmm. So you might see symptoms of, you know, interestingly, the dentist might be the first person to identify somebody with bulimia who is vomiting because it ruins the enamel on their teeth. So every time I go to the dentist, I make sure I tell them, here's what I do. Let me know if you need any help with conversations with folks. Here's where you can go to the National Eating Disorders Association on how to talk with somebody that you suspect might have an eating disorder. Um. So the weight loss element that some uh, folks with who are uh, reducing their body weight, you'll start to grow uh, this soft downy fuzz on their um, cheeks and jawline to keep them warm. They might start to have hair loss associated with it. Um, uh, Folks will uh, maybe be over-exercising. I remember having a, a friend who... Uh, decided that before her her sister's wedding that she needed, and she was the maid mm-hmm. of honor, she needed to go on a 20-mile bike ride. Oh. So if you can't suspend your physical activity in the service of things that you highly value, that might be wow. that might be um, uh, something someone who's struggling okay. with over-exercise issues. Um, exercising on an injury also could be, evidence of somebody who's struggling with food and body issues. Uh, there's so many signs. And, uh, you know, the, the challenge is, is that you might be noticing or know in your gut, yeah. you know, that, that there's something going on. Sometimes people will find evidence of hidden sure. food around the home, hoarding, that sort of thing. Uh, so what do you say about that? So use these signs as a gentle red flag, but I want to caution folks from getting into this, what I call the CSI investigation. <laughs> yeah. And it's better that, to, right. right? You're, cause you're never going to win another, um, another really interesting thing about folks with eating disorders is they tend to be brilliant individuals. I always say they're smarter than me. Huh. And so if I'm going to be in a war of facts with them, I'm going to lose oh, every yeah. time. They retain information sure. so much better than I do. Um, so you approach with love, compassion, and care. And a great way to do that is just to sit down and say, you know what, I'm, I'm seeing that you might be struggling. And i I wonder if you'd like to talk with me about it or if mm-hmm. we could, you know, look for a way for you to get some help. I've noticed that you you seem to be in a lot of pain about food in your body recently. Mm. That, man, that can be, and I'm glad you're moving into this because this touches on the relationship aspect of somebody who is going through a major issue that they may not understand fully until we have those in our corner who are seeing us for who we are and recognizing um, the patterns that are out of the ordinary, if you will. And when you approach somebody, you mentioned the CSI aspect of it. I can imagine that the person going through that disorder would then have the barrier of trust when that person who they love comes to them and says, hey, look, you're have you may be having an issue. Let's talk. Where do you balance that? That seems like a very difficult thing to kind of navigate. 
Yeah, the challenge is, is when you, you lead with the facts, the individual is going to be focused on the denial mm-hmm. of the fact or arguing about the fact or, you know, the, the individuals with addictions and eating disorders often have what I like to call the inability to accurately self-report. Okay. They, they have a brain, you know, a brain defense mechanism called dissociation or they, they're a part of them creates a different reality than what actually mm-hmm. happened. Sometimes it's out and out yeah. lying, but a lot of the times it's because they love the person they're talking right. to, or they care very much for the person they're talking to. They don't want to hurt them. Sure. And so the, the, if they were to self report of what truth is, if they even know mm-hmm. it, because sometimes yep. they don't, then they're going to hurt the individual that they're talking to. So they're trying to manage what reality is and the per- and the other person's sure. emotions. And they may not want to feel like a burden or that you're disappointed right. in them. So that so we have all sorts of dynamics that go into approaching with facts. Mm-hmm. But if you approach with, I I imagine you might be struggling because I've noticed you've been picking at your food lately. Mm-hmm. Right, you give them a little bit of a fact, and it it seems like you're you're having a hard time connecting mm. with others, and because, and you just insert something right. you know about their life because you told me about how challenging your yeah. job is, and I care about you, and uh, maybe we can have a conversation about how I can support you. Wow, yeah, I can imagine those would be regardless of the disorder or the addiction, um, those being very delicate conversations to navigate, um, when you have exhausted that option and that option has gone by the wayside, if you will, you want to bring in maybe another person, maybe ask them if they want to go see a counselor or what are the next steps kind of moving into that interventionist realm when people are getting so hurt by the things that they're addicted to or that they're doing to their bodies that more than just that one person is coming and saying, Hey, look, you need some help. We love you, but you need some help. I highly recommend that family members consider or loved ones consider um, reaching out and getting support from a professional Mm -hmm. themselves. So I, that, you know, a lot of my business that I do is, folks seeking consultation. What do I say? What do I do? Whether it's a professional or a family member or a husband, wife, and then um, working with that person to make a plan for, uh, there are lots of things we can do to support a caregiver. We have a a model called emotion-focused family therapy, Mm -hmm. which was developed by Adele LaFrance and is a book. And it was designed, she did such a great job of developing a way to talk with your loved one about your concerns. And I just did it with you just Mm -hmm. a few minutes ago where I did those because this, because that, because that. Um, So that you're validating their struggle or their pain or the thing they might want to do or not want to do before you're going into problem solving. So sometimes it can be useful for those folks who want to support the person with the disorder to get a little skills mm-hmm. under their belt in order to approach them in a way that's more effective. Well, and to add, 
Just and, to add to that real quick, the intention yeah. of the party involved could also play a big role in what they're seeing. They could be seeing something that may be false. Maybe they're seeing something that isn't really there or it's not maybe they're even downplaying the problem to a point. And so I think having a therapist or a counselor there to kind of flesh out what that motivation is behind their visit could be really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great point. Yeah. Sometimes it's about other people are saying this is a problem, but I don't think it is. Yeah. Or, you know, do I really need to be concerned about this? Right. So getting, Getting um, some expert, and if, if somebody calls me and says, here's the thing that my son is going through, I can't say, here's the oh, diagnosis right. without meeting with someone, but I can give them an idea about a direction sure. to go to determine if it's something they need to be worried about. So I know we only have a few more minutes left, but when you when you have exhausted all those options, you've gone to the counselor you said okay my son my daughter my xyz person is going through this struggle and they're still not on board and they're they're really hurting themselves and we're really really worried then what happens well you can certainly employ folks like myself uh to to consider interventions i will say that for eating disorders they're there are not a lot of interventionists that know how to intervene mm. on eating disorders, so choose yeah. wisely. Um, and sometimes there's barriers to getting the person to treatment. A lot of times, the you know the family members say this person needs yeah. to go to treatment, but there might be some barriers like the person's mm. own willingness to yeah. go to treatment. Yeah, so it's not common. It's possible, but it's not very common. It's very rare that we're actually able to involuntarily treat mm. someone with an eating disorder. And folks with substance use disorders, yeah, I don't want to say it's easier, but oftentimes they have other things sure. hanging over their head. They've spent all their money or they um, have legal yeah. issues. Um, it's been happening over and over and they realize that they want, you know, want yeah. to get better and get the help. Folks with eating disorders tend to thrive in secrecy right. and isolation. They're often very self-sufficient. Uh, they carry their own insurances, and they, you know, they um, have fear of going into treatment. They have to recover in an environment in which they have to be in their body around yeah. food and eat the food all the time. So it's not like we can do an abstinence model like we do with substances. So it's a very delicate and difficult sell to an individual who's resistant with an eating disorder. To well, they're go completely to exposed. And then, exactly. That's got to be terrifying. I mean, if yeah. you're sitting there writing in your book, and I, I use this because you see it in movies and films all the time, but if you see people writing in their journal, what they ate, how many calories they've counted, and you know those kind of things. That amount of control, I can, I, I'm only assuming, is kind of like that OCD that you were talking about at the beginning. Um, so yeah, keep keep going. That was very interesting. Yeah, and if you think about what they we ask them to do, and especially if they're going into a treatment program like a residential or an inpatient program is to give away all control around mm. food in their body, to be in it around other people. Also, folks with eating disorders tend to be 
competitive. I know that might be a new concept, but they're competitive about who ha- who's the sickest one with the oh, eating geez. disorder. And they worry, even when they're way below an ideal body weight, that they will be the heaviest wow. person yeah. at the treatment center or that they're not sick enough to deserve this care. So it's all kinds of psychology which goes into this. And then eating disorder treatment programs in general, are going to want the individual to call themselves and do their own assessment. And a substance use program might be more likely to hear from a family member and work with an interventionist to get that person in the door. But that is not the case with 99% of um, eating disorders. I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking if somebody, if you're trying to get somebody who's going to I guess going through the uh, the emotional stress of an eating disorder and you present them with the not so great facts of that and they're already their walls are way up and you say, hey, well, we're going to go to this uh, interventionist and I've I've put you a, a spot at this, you know, in-house therapy or this uh, in-person therapy, inpatient therapy. And let's go. I, you know, the uh, amount of bucking on that with- <laughs> It's like going to a rodeo. Uh, it's not one of those things where you can just have yeah. their bags packed and ready to go. It's not. It's not like an alcoholic addiction or a drug addiction uh, in in that case. And so I'm glad you brought that up. What does uh, the treatment plan look like? Because I'm imagining that it's not you know place somebody down in front of a table and say, okay, now don't eat this, or yes, you need to eat that. What does treatment plans usually look like? So that it varies depending on the diagnosis and the severity mm-hmm. of the illness. Um, the, the intervention model that I practice is called uh, Arise Inter- Comprehensive yeah. Care with Intervention. And its founder is right here in Colorado, oh, cool. Judith Landau. And the, I selected her intervention model because it is the most family-friendly in terms of Supporting an individual mm. to go to treatment, to stay in treatment, and for the family to have wraparound support after treatment. So you work with, it's a longer term uh-huh. intervention model that helps the whole family to heal because families are often emotionally struggling or traumatized by the severity of the illness or the right. duration of time the individual has been in the illness. So it's a, it can be applied to mental health addictions and eating disorders, but I thought it was the most loving model to bring to eating disorder and eating disorders and doing interventions. And so that the way that that works is that you you work with the family mm-hmm. to schedule a meeting that the person with the eating disorder knows that they're going to go to. They gotcha. know they're going to be invited okay. to this meeting where they we begin to address. The problem, which is the behavior, is not the individual, with the individual as part of one of those problems. So it's really a a several-prong approach rather than attacking the eating disorder, you know, head on. Right. Rather than pointing the finger and saying, you're you're having a a problem, we don't like it, go to treatment, (laughs) and good luck. Which, as we all know, that goes over so well. Right, right. And because you're dealing with, you know, as we mentioned before, eating and body, they're going to be there when the person comes home from treatment, too. So they, they yeah. need to help this person. They can't recover in a vacuum. And no. they have to be exposed. So you could think about that somebody who might be restoring their weight or gaining weight mm-hmm. as part of their treatment typically yeah. will have 
three meals and three snacks a day. So six times a day, seven days a week, they are eating food that is challenging. Wow. Right? So it's a, you know, think about what that would be like in terms of alcohol treatment. Be like I taking can, the alcoholic yeah. to the bar and saying, right. here's, the, here's the Jack Daniels, let's develop a healthy relationship with it. That's just unheard of. Right. Like, my mind is spinning because when I think of taking an alcoholic into a bar and saying, here's the Jack, like, you're just asking for trouble. I, I can imagine the does the family go through the therapy process with the individual while while they're in rehab? Uh, oftentimes, family uh, therapy is a component of good eating disorder treatment, and I would look for that if you're looking okay. for a treatment program for your loved one. Okay, very cool. Uh, well, thank you very much for all that information. If there's somebody who is going through these challenging times. How could they get a hold of you and what research would you point them to or things would you point them to? Yeah, so you can get a hold of me. My website is www.eatingdisorderintervention.com. That's the best place to go. And I actually have a resource page there that you can click on with all kinds of uh, resources on eating disorders, mental health, and substance use. Wonderful. Yeah. So we'll put all of those links in the show notes. So make sure you click on those down below. Uh, Any final words from you um, in relation to everything we've talked about? I always like to say that recovery is possible. It may feel hard and challenging Mm -hmm. and messy. It's possible and it's worth it. Wow. Thank you very much. It's been such a blessing having you on, and I hope we get to have you on again and talk more about kind of the intervention side of it, because that's a whole other aspect that can get very hairy and it has to be navigated with kit gloves. And so um, we'll, we'll definitely have you back. So again, thank you guys so much. Uh, my name is Jonathan Price for Bill Lundgren and the entire AINC staff. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.